As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, give us life according to your word. Teach us your statutes. Make us understand the way of your precepts, and we will meditate on your wondrous works. Strengthen us now according to your word and open it to us, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in Mark's gospel to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad to have you here today. We've been considering a series in the morning through the book of Mark, and we've come to Mark chapter 12 at verse 18. Mark chapter 12 at verse 18. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on many of them on page 1079. Uh, Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. We're going to take up our reading at Mark chapter 18 and read through verse 27. So Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 18, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers, the first took a wife. And when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, as we've been going through this section of Mark's gospel, we've noticed that uh, these are a series of conflict narratives. Uh, They're they're stories about conflict as Jesus comes into conflict with the religious authorities over what he's doing and over what he's teaching as he's come to Jerusalem. Uh, Last week we saw him coming into conflict with the Pharisees and the Herodians over a political question over whether they should pay the poll tax. So they came into conflict with Jesus over that political question. Uh, This week, there's a different group of people, the Sadducees, and they come in in conflict with Jesus over a theological question, um, whether there is a resurrection. Uh, That's the question that they want uh, to put to Jesus, uh, the question that they debated, uh, the question of the resurrection. So we're moving from a sort of hotly debated political question to a hotly debated Um, theological question. Uh, You might remember that when when Paul is in Jerusalem in the book of Acts and he's being uh, harassed by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that's one of the ways he kind of uh, covers himself to say, you know, I'm teaching about the resurrection and I'm a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees and it's these people who object to the resurrection that are causing me trouble. And you remember that started a whole fight. Um, So this was something people fought over. This was a theological question that they wrestled with. It was a hotly debated one in Jesus' time. Um, And this is an important thing that Jesus settles, not just as a theological question. Uh, There are people in our world who like just 
banding about theological questions for the fun of it. Uh, Jesus is not entering into this debate uh, simply to engage in uh, theological wrangling, but he engages in this because this is one of the most important hopes that God's people have. Uh, This is one of the greatest promises that God makes. It's the ultimate source of our hope as Christians is in the resurrection from the dead and the life of the resurrection that God promises to all who believe in his Son. Um, Our great hope um, is communicated. We prayed it in our congregational prayer. We see it in Philippians 3, 20 to 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Um, This is the great Christian hope. And Jesus wants to correct the ideas of the resurrection that are rampant in his day to teach the glorious truth about what God promises to his people. And so we want to look at this passage with that in mind, to see our Lord teaching us about the glories of resurrection life. And we see that in this passage through first a resurrection test that the Sadducees put to him, and then resurrection truth that he meets that test with, and also resurrection testimony. Uh, that he gives us at the conclusion of our passage. And so that's how I want to think about the passage together. Resurrection test, resurrection truth, and resurrection testimony. Uh, First, we see this resurrection test. As we said, this is a theological question that is put to Jesus by the Sadducees. Um, Now, the Sadducees are a group that Mark only mentions here in his gospel. Um, Other Gospels talk about the Sadducees. They appear again in the book of Acts, as I said. Um, But this is the only time Mark talks about them. And Mark here tells us everything we need to know about them. Um, Who are the Sadducees? Uh, They are those, verse 18 tells us, who say that there is no resurrection. Um, That's essentially what we need to know about the Sadducees. They say there is no resurrection. Uh, They disagree with the popularly held belief in Jesus' day in the resurrection on the last day. Uh, Most people in Jesus' day believed there was a resurrection. Uh, We see that belief reflected in John 11, for example, when when Lazarus has died and Jesus comes to the family and he's talking with Martha and he says to Martha, your brother will rise again. Um, And Martha replies in John 11, 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Um, That was the the hope that was around in Jesus' day. Most people believed that there was a resurrection that was coming on the last day. It was coming when Messiah returned. Messiah would raise the dead of the faithful um, on earth. And so there was this popularly held belief, but not everyone agreed with this belief. And the Sadducees were a group of people who didn't believe in this. Um, They didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, and part of the reason they didn't believe in the resurrection, because the, the popularly held view as it was sort of translated through the Pharisees and their tradition, was that you rise from the dead and then you resume your earthly relationships. You kind of rise from the dead to go back to an earthly existence. Uh, you just sort of return to this life. That that was sort of the hope of the resurrection, and the Sadducees found that to be absurd. Um, They believed that this tradition had developed, this popular belief on the resurrection, had developed apart from what was taught by Moses. Um, If if you know, know, there are people in the world who are sort of King James only uh, people when it comes to the Bible, the Sadducees would have been the book of Moses only people. 
Um, they only really supported the first five books of the Bible. That's where they drew all of their authority. Um, they thought a lot of the rest of the Bible reflected later traditions that were not taught in Moses. And so they really only believed the things that were taught in those first five books. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All of their authority they vested there. All of their teaching they drew from there. We sometimes call those books the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And they said, if Moses didn't say it, then we don't believe it. And they thought that Moses said nothing about the resurrection. Um, There's nothing in the first five books of the Bible really about resurrection. Um, There are certainly clear statements about the resurrection in other parts of the Bible, Uh, Probably Daniel 12, verse 2, and Isaiah 26, 19 are two of the clearest passages about resurrection. And there are psalms like Psalm 16, Psalm 73 that certainly relate to it. Job in Job 19 talks about, um, I know that my Redeemer lives, and after my skin is destroyed, I will see him. Right. So there are references to the resurrection, but the Sadducees would have said that's all outside of the book of Moses. Um, And the notion that we are raised from the dead to resume our normal earthly relationships doesn't really make any sense. Um, Their position was Moses said nothing about the resurrection. And so what they really thought was death is an extinction, that blessings and judgments that God pronounces are pronounced on people in this life, and any notion about a life after death or a resurrection to come uh, was simply not taught in the Bible. And certainly any notion that you you, you rise from the dead to resume your earthly life struck them as sort of silly. Um, And it's in that spirit, that kind of spirit of ridiculing this idea, that they set forth for Jesus uh, the the question they do. They give him a passage and a hypothetical based on that passage. And of course, being Moses-only people, they give a passage from Moses, from Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, about what was known as leveret marriage. It was a provision that if there were brothers who shared the same estate, and one brother died, and he left a widow with no children, then it was his duty to marry um, his brother's widow and raise up children for his brother. Um, And the purpose of that in Deuteronomy 25 uh, was that so he would build up his brother's house that his name might not be blotted out of Israel. Um, This was not just something practiced in Israel. This This predated Moses, we read about this in Genesis 38, for example, with Judah and Tamar. There was this idea um, of needing to marry um, your brother's widow, and that was to raise up children for him, for his name, and so that his house would be built up and that his name would not uh, perish from the land. And so the Sadducees say, let's imagine there are seven brothers all living on the same estate. And let's imagine that they all marry and don't have children, they die, and they leave a widow, and then each brother marries the wife. Each brother marries the widow. Um, Now, maybe this makes all of you think about brother-in-laws and whether this sounds like a good idea to you. Uh, This was a limited circumstance in Israel. It really was limited to you sharing the same estate, and it wasn't absolutely compulsory, um, but you were, you know, subject to public shame if you didn't do it. But the Sadducees are saying, let's say, according to the law, following this law, you have seven brothers who end up marrying the same widow, and none of them have children. And then say you rise from the dead. They all rise from the dead to resume their normal earthly relationships. If that's the case, then whose wife is she? Because she had seven. And you can can almost hear the smugness in the way 
they're putting this. This is maybe a question they've put to the Pharisees to confound them before, and maybe no one has had a good answer to this question for them before, but they, they sort of play this like their trump card. Like, this makes it completely ridiculous to think of the resurrection, um, particularly in light of this kind of passage. How could you resume these earthly relationships? What sense would that make? Whose wife would she be? And they put that question to Jesus. And in, in referring to Deuteronomy 25, they're probably also trying to drive home their point, that, that when Moses talked about the thought of life continuing on, your life continued on in your children. Uh, to the extent that your name continued, your name continued in your children. Your name continued in the family line. Uh, that's the way you weren't blotted out of Israel. That's the way you, you lived on. And so they would have argued that's really the only way you live on in the book of Moses, is through the, the people and the reputation you leave behind. Uh, that's the only way you live on. And so they put this question to Jesus. How do you answer that? How do you answer this problem of the resurrection? And Jesus answers it with a resurrection truth that's pretty simple, clear, and to the point. You are wrong, and here's why. That's essentially how Jesus answers their their thing that they think is such a great question that's going to confound him. He just says, you're wrong, and here's why. Uh, That's the thrust of verse 24. Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Why have they gotten things so badly wrong? Because Jesus says you've understood neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And for the rest of the passage, Jesus will just kind of take those two points in turn. Let me tell you about the power of God, and let me tell you about the truth of the Scriptures. And that's where he begins with the truth of the power of God, Uh, the resurrection truth of what God will do when he raises the dead. You've misunderstood the power of God, Jesus says. The power of God will be displayed when the dead are raised. Um, When the dead are raised, the power of God will be displayed. Notice how Jesus says that the resurrection is a certainty. Right? Verse 25, when they rise... This is not a disputed point or a disputable point from Jesus' perspective. This is a truth that cannot be denied. It's the certainty of the power of God that the dead will be raised. The dead will rise. And how can Jesus speak with such certainty about the resurrection? How can Jesus say with such certainty that the dead will rise? It's because he himself will raise them to life. But that's the glorious truth of John chapter 5. The Lord will raise the dead. Uh, Remember what our Lord said in John 5. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Then a few verses later, it says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Jesus knows that God's people will rise from the dead. And why does he know that? Because he intends to call them from death to life. 
He can speak with certainty about the resurrection because he will do it. He will do it by his power. It's the power of our Lord that makes the resurrection a certainty. Um, And he says anyone who would deny the power of the resurrection does not know the power of God. They will rise, and the resurrection character of that life will be far beyond what you imagine or think. Um, They don't rise to earthly life. In this way, Jesus is saying, I am not a believer in Pharisaic tradition. I'm not a believer in someone who says, yes, there's a resurrection, but we rise to resume this life. That's not the kind of resurrection that happens. That's not the kind of resurrection life that people rise to. The character of the resurrection life is far different from this earthly life. It's far more glorious than this earthly life. He says, that's really the reason you're wrong, because you really don't understand the power of God. You don't understand the certainty of the resurrection that God promises, and you really don't understand the glory of the life that God promises. He's not promising to raise us to this kind of life. Um, In this way, I always remember being a seminary student going to speak to uh, people at a sort of rescue mission. Um, it was, and I preached just for maybe 10 minutes, and it was sort of every level of attention uh, you can imagine in the place, and I preached about uh, the hope of eternal life. And I remember someone afterwards said, I don't, why would I want eternal life? Who wants to live like this forever? And it always struck me because I had not made clear that the eternal life that God promises is not this kind of life. That's the mistake they were making here. God is not promising a resumption of this kind of life. He's promising a better, more glorious life. They hadn't understood the power of God. The power of what God is going to do at the resurrection for those who love him. Um, As big a change as death is, going from dying and leaving this world and departing and going to be with Christ, as big a change as that is, as much of a gain as that is, there's an even greater change that takes place when we rise from the dead. And we are lifted up out of the grave by our Lord Jesus Christ and live body and soul before him. The theologian Herbin Bobbing said, death is an enormous change, a breaking of all ties with this earthly life and an entering into a new world with totally different conditions and relations. A sudden relocation of the believer into the presence of Christ, and consequently to a total destruction of the outer sinful members and a total renewal of the inner self. Um, We confess that in the, in, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. We say, if Christ has died for us, then why must we still die? And it makes the point that our death is not a payment for sin. It's an end to our sinning and an entrance into eternal life. Now, we can say that and confess that, but it's hard for us to fully understand that. Because I only know me as a sinner. I hope that's not a shock to you. Um, I only know me as a sinner. It's hard for me to imagine entering into a life where I'm not a sinner, where I don't have to pray a prayer of confession ever again. We can confess that life, but it's hard to fully understand 
that life. And if passing from death to life is that big a change, then what will it be to pass from that life of the soul before the Savior and glory to being raised from the dead and to live again body and soul before the Lord? That's a huge spiritual change, and that's actually what God's people ultimately are looking forward to. Um, The hope of dying and going to be with the Lord is a great hope, but it's not our greatest hope. Our hope is that we will die and go to be with the Lord until the Lord returns again in glory to raise us from the dead. We are not meant to live for eternity as disembodied souls. And as long as death reigns that way, the full redemption has not yet been accomplished. I think again, Bavink I think is helpful here. Spiritual redemption from sin is only fully completed in bodily redemption at the end of time. Christ is a complete Savior. Just as he first appeared to establish the kingdom of heaven in the hearts of believers, so he will one day come again to give it visible shape and to make his absolute power over sin and death incontrovertibly manifest before all creatures in the resurrection of the dead and in the renewal of all things. Sin has affected us, body and soul. And God's redeeming work in us in Christ will not be completed until we are raised, body and soul. That's the hope that we are looking forward to. That's what Jesus promises that God will do, and he will raise us to a life that is not like this life, but is like a heavenly life. Right? Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And I think this is a poignant thing that Jesus does, because as the Sadducees had tried to use leveret marriage in the law of Moses to mock the resurrection, Jesus actually uses marriage to illustrate the power of resurrection life by saying they neither marry nor are given in marriage because they are like the angels in heaven. Um, Now, what what does Jesus mean by that? Um, Some people have really struggled with this, this idea that there's no marriage in heaven or that marriage relationships are somehow destroyed in heaven. Um, Those who love their spouses don't necessarily look at this as a wonderful promise that marriages seem to be of lesser importance here, but what is Jesus' point really? And I think we can help to understand his point if we just think about the purpose for which God established the institution of marriage. Um, Every time we solemnize a marriage, every time a minister solemnizes a marriage, we, we talk to the couple in the form for marriage about what the purposes are for marriage as God has given it to us, the, the, the purposes for the institution. The first purpose is that the husband and wife will live together in sincere love and holiness, helping each other faithfully in all things. That God has created the institution of marriage to continue and to increase the human race. Um, that God has given the institution of marriage to advance the kingdom of God, so the advancement of the kingdom of God is promoted. Wonderful purposes for the institution of marriage. And so what is Jesus saying? Why don't you marry or are given in marriage in heaven? Well, because all of those purposes will have been accomplished in resurrection life. Because the whole church will live together in sincere love and holiness, 
and will help each other faithfully in all things. There won't, need, need, there won't be any need for the continuing and increasing of the human race because all of the saints that God has called will be gathered together in glory. The human race will have been completed. Uh, there will be no more need for an institution to contribute to the advancement and promotion of the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God will have fully come. Uh, Jesus is not saying somehow that the good institution sort of falls away in heaven or becomes irrelevant. He's just sort of saying heavenly life is so much more glorious that these earthly institutions pass away in their need. Right? Sort of like when the sun shines through a window, you don't need the lamp inside anymore to lighten the room. It's far brighter than the light you have. That's what Jesus is saying. The glory of heaven is far greater because there we will be like the angels. And what is, what is angelic life in heaven? It's a perfect communion with one another and a perfect communion with God forever. And Jesus is saying, fundamentally, if you think of the heavenly life like this earthly life, you don't really know the power of God. Because the promise of the resurrection life is to lift us up above this life. To reveal a glory of a kind of life we've never known what it is to live body and soul in perfect fellowship with the entire church from all ages and perfect fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you think the idea of resurrection life is absurd, it's because you haven't understood the power of God. You haven't understood what he promises, the life that he promises to give, that perfect, holy, blessed life, body and soul, with Jesus Christ and with one another forever together. Jesus is saying, you've made a serious mistake because you've not understood the power of God. And then he moves from resurrection truth to the resurrection testimony of God's word. Right? He said there were two reasons you're wrong. You've understood neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And now Jesus is going to go back to the scriptures and say, you have failed to understand this because you don't read your Bibles. And you don't read them to listen to what they have to say to you. And so notice where Jesus takes them in the Bible. Um, he says in verse 26, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Um, if it was a terrible insult to them to be told, you don't understand the scriptures, it would be even worse to tell these guys who were Book of Moses only people that you haven't understood Exodus 3.6. Right? That, that Jesus is really turning the dagger here and saying, have you never really read Exodus 3.6? I mean, every, all these guys, I'm sure, would have known that he's referring to Exodus 3.6, the passage about the bush. Um, remember, Moses was tending sheep, and he looked and saw a bush that was on fire and noticed that the fire was burning, but the bush was not consumed. And so he turned aside to see what was happening, and the voice of the angel of the Lord spoke to him out of the bush and said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That was the identification that happened there. And Jesus is citing an authority that these guys can't dispute. 
right? The book of Moses said this. So let's think about what Moses said, what Moses recorded for God's people, and why this passage proves the resurrection. When God appeared to Moses and said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, what was he reminding Moses of? That this God was a God who had made covenant promises to those patriarchs and that he was a God who had always fulfilled the promises to them that he had made. But he comes and says to Moses, I am that God who came to Abraham And said to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations to be an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That's the heart of that covenant promise. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. It's a reminder of the promises that God made, and it's a reminder that God had been faithful to his promises. God had promised in that covenant, I like how Louis Burkhoff summarized it, friendship with God and a life of communion with Him. Isn't that a wonderful way to think about what God means when He says, I will be your God? He's promising friendship with Him and a life of communion lived with Him. That's what He promised them. That's what he was reminding Moses of, of those promises, and was reminding Moses that God fulfilled the promise to be God to them. A few weeks ago, we thought about Psalm 146, and we thought about God being the God of Jacob, and we, we thought together about what God had said, um, or what Jacob had said about God at the end of his life, his testimony to who God had been for him. He said in Genesis 48, 15, and 16 that he was the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. He said, I will be your God. And Jacob said, I can testify at the end of my life, he was God to Abraham and he was God to Isaac and he was God to me. He has shepherded me all my my life long and has been the messenger who has redeemed me from every evil. He said he would be my God, and he was. And God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and said, I am still that same God who has promised to be God to you and your offspring after you. I am still the God who redeems from all evil. And just as I redeemed Abraham and Isaac and Jacob from all evil, I will redeem Israel from all evil in Egypt. That is who I am. And I am who I am. Right? That was the thrust of how God came to Moses in the bush to remind him of who he was and who he would be for God's people, who redeems from all evil. That was the promise, the reminder that those in covenant fellowship with God have friendship with him and a life of communion with him. And that that life of communion is guaranteed by his covenant faithfulness. Because he is faithful, we will have that life. And his point was that nothing can sever that relationship and nothing can interfere with that promise. And that's the sense in which Jesus is saying that promise, who God was and what he promised to do, is the guarantee of resurrection. 
Because God is faithful. God is faithful to redeem from all evil. And I'm really appreciative of the commentators who brought this out because sometimes it would be hard for us to make that connection. How is that statement really a promise of resurrection? Well, and this is the reason. If God had protected and delivered Abraham and Isaac and Jacob from every evil in this life, but then failed to deliver them from death, what would that say about God's covenant and its promises? What if he protected them from everything else except from death? What if he redeemed them from everything else but death? Somebody said, death is the enemy which marks the definite and absolute check upon our hopes. And that would make God's protection of little value if he doesn't protect against death. Right? That's the ultimate thing we have no power against. As they say in boxing, Father Time is undefeated. It's the thing we all are guaranteed to face unless the Lord returns. And as Jesus is saying, did God really not deliver from death? Right Then we're right where Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. That if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have hope only for this life? Someone said it is inconceivable that God would provide for the patriarch some partial tokens of deliverance and then leave the final word to death. It would really constitute a breach of God's covenant promise. And that's why Jesus is saying he did not breach his promise when he said, I will be God to you. That was a promise that carried through their lives. It carried past their lives into death. And it will carry past their deaths into resurrection. Death will not have the last word for God's people. Life has the last word. And not any kind of life, Christ's kind of life. That's the promise that guarantees life after death for the people of God. Because God is a savior. And he saves even from death. John Calvin put it simply but wonderfully, since therefore the Lord promises salvation to all to whom he declares that he is their God, it follows that there remains even for the dead a hope of life. I will be God to you now. I will be God to you when you die. I will be God to you and raise you from the dead. That's the promise that God makes to his people. He promises a life of friendship and communion with him body and soul in eternity with him and with all of God's people. That's why that promise, I will be your God, includes final glorification, body and soul, in a life that never ends. That's the hope that God holds out. And, and it's wonderful to think about this particular passage conveying that promise, because this isn't just the testimony that was recorded by Moses in Exodus 3.6. Who was the one who spoke those words to Moses out of the bush? It was the angel of the Lord who spoke out of the bush, the messenger of the Lord. And we know it wasn't an angel who spoke those words because that voice said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Whose voice was it that spoke out of the bush? 
It was the voice of the Son of God. It was the pre-incarnate Christ speaking to Moses there. The pre-incarnate Christ spoke to Moses from the bush. The incarnate Christ speaks to his word to his people here and says, He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. You are quite wrong. It's his testimony that guarantees the hope that we are all waiting for. Not just the hope that when we die, we go to be with the Lord, as wonderful as that is. And I hope nothing I've said diminishes the hope we have to die and go to be with the Lord. But our ultimate hope is not just to die and to be with the Lord in our souls. Our ultimate hope is for that day when the whole church will enter into that glory together. And because God has said, I will be God to you and your descendants after you for an everlasting covenant, there's a wonderful sense in which that can't happen until it happens to all of us together. There's a glory that we cannot experience individually, that we have to experience corporately as the church. And not just the church here, the church from every generation, from the beginning of the world till its ending. There's a hope that we all have to enter into together. And that's what the resurrection of the dead really is. It's the church all at the same time entering into that same glory. Right? We have brothers and sisters who have preceded us in death and gone to be with the Lord. And when the Lord comes again in glory, they will come with him. And we will be raised with them and we will greet one another in the air. There's a promise that, that only can be accomplished in all of the church at the same time. The scriptures testify that there are experiences of glory that we can only have all together. Someone said the part cannot be complete without the whole. The fullness of Christ's love can only be known in communion with all the saints. Ephesians 3:18 and 19. One group of believers cannot be made perfect without the others. Hebrews 11:40. We're all waiting for that glory together. And that's the glorious good news of the gospel, the ultimate hope of the people of God, is that there is a day coming when he who is the resurrection and the life will come and all who believe in him will rise from the dead together and enter into the glory of resurrection life with our Lord and Savior at the same time and enjoy that blessedness together as a complete church for the first time And forever. That day that Jesus spoke of when many come from the east and west to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And there we will enjoy friendship with God and a life of communion with him forevermore, body and soul, with him and with each other. Um, Isn't that the power of God? Isn't that the truth of God's word? of what he will do. Uh, There's still much that we don't know about the true glory that awaits believers in heaven. There's much we don't know. Maybe at this late hour you're afraid I'll try to tell you. Um, I'm not going to try to tell you. I couldn't do it justice if I tried. There's much we don't know, but the most important thing we can know is this. Don't miss it. It's a glory that defies my ability to describe it to you. But don't miss it. How do we be sure that we will be part of this resurrection? To be sure that we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that we cling to him by faith, that we look not to ourselves but to him for all of our hope. And if we do that, that we could be assured that on that great and glorious day, when the Lord is coming, and he's coming soon, we will be able to say together with all of God's people the words of Isaiah 25.9, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. May we all have the joy of saying that together on that great day that's coming. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how we long for that great day of glory when the Lord Jesus comes and raises his church to life. Uh, What a terrible thing it is to deny that there is such a resurrection coming. And yet, Lord, we confess that we struggle because we, we fail to understand what life in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells will really be like. It's hard for us to know what a world is like where all things have been made new, where there is no more suffering or tears or mourning or pain anymore for the former things have passed away, a place where sorrow and sighing has fleed away, where we are with our Lord and without sin, where we are with all your people from every age of the world. Uh, We cannot fully comprehend that glory, but we thank you that our Lord gives us a glimpse of it, that he is the God who spoke to the patriarchs, promising that he would be God to them and to their offspring after them for an eternal covenant. We thank you that he has always shown himself to be a savior, that he is redeemed from all evil. We thank you that he still keeps those promises today. May all of us here embrace those promises by faith and find life in his name and know the power of his resurrection.